We are live. All right. We don't have a viewer at the moment. <laughs> That's okay. They'll probably. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, I think we, we are live. Post the stream on um, on the group also. Do you have the? Yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, because my sister was asking for it. Yeah, we are live now. So, welcome to the session two of uh, ZMC alumni uh, dialogue with. Uh, our graduates, fellow graduates on COVID-19, the latest pandemic that's taking over the world. It's like the World War III. So our guests for today are um, Kareem from Badge 4 and Rizwan from Badge 6. Both of them are in North America and uh, Kareem is currently in Canada. If, uh, and uh, we did some introduction a little uh, messed up in the email. He's currently director of infectious disease at uh, Niagara Healthcare Center, if I'm correct. And he's also lead at the lead of the pandemic team and emergency team over there. And he's also in an academic position in uh, McMaster University as assistant uh, clinical professor in infectious disease. And Rizwan is basically a diplomat, American board, and certified in neurology and specifying in stroke division. Welcome to both of you. And with me, Hoda will be starting the questions to both of the guests. So you can start yeah. your questions, Hoda. Thanks, guys. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, so Kareem, I would like to start with you and ask about the coronavirus itself. What exactly is it? How many strains are there? And uh, how did uh, we get where we are today? So um, first of all, uh, thank you uh, for letting me uh, talk about this today. Um, and you know, happy Doctor's Day to all of us. That's uh, it's it's first May Doctor's Day, and you know, I, I really wish uh, Doctor Irfan Ahmed Khan uh, was was here with us. And if he's looking at us. Like I want to give out a shout out to him today about this, okay? Now, this coronavirus um, um, has taken over our our life uh, over the past uh, three months or so, right? And uh, basically, what we know about coronavirus is um, it's it's a zoonotic virus. That means that the origin of this virus is actually in uh animals right like and with coronaviruses it's specifically bats that we talk about you just have to understand most of the viruses that we deal with in in real life now they actually are of zoonotic origin just like hiv um and uh, more importantly influenza influenza is actually a bird virus right so and it crosses over into species or causes uh, uh, these spillover events that, that lead to human uh, epidemics. The last major pandemic that we know um, of a respiratory virus like this was the 1918 influenza uh, virus pandemic that was uh, like, uh, uh, that, that had the numbers that we are starting to see now, 
there have been other you know h1n1 influenza <clears throat> in 2009 and 10 that we saw but again this has not been the same magnitude and comparing this virus to the influenza virus is also not not true okay the the more most important thing to know about these viruses is they're called coronaviruses because they have these crown like projections as we know right and they originated in uh, in in bats okay that there are certain coronaviruses that already circulate in human beings and in north america they cause about 15% of uh, uh, common cold like illness uh, during uh, flu, cold and flu season. Uh, there are different kinds of these uh, viruses in bats. There are approximately 40 to 50 known coronaviruses. And this one, uh, this particular coronavirus, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 likely jumped uh, from uh, um, an animal. So from a bat to an animal, then animal to human somewhere around October 30th or 31st. The first known case now that we know about uh, likely uh, was uh, November 17th in Wuhan. And then it started a cluster, different clusters of infection. The test for this virus became available on January the 3rd. So all of this had to be res uh, retrospective diagnosis, right? And then it just exploded. Initially, the thought was that this is all related to uh, the seafood uh, or uh, the wild uh, food wholesale market, uh, where uh, there is a lot of um, different species are in very close contact, right? So, I mean, it, it's like it's like Machli Bazaar uh, times uh, times uh, one thousand, right? Like it's so many people, so many animals in such a close contact, and uh, that was. The thought was that this uh, there was likely an epidemiologic link to that market. Well, this has been thought to, not to be true. Uh, it's just it came to light through that market, and that market was shut down on January the first. Um, I still remember on December thirty first uh, when you know there was a, an email sent out by Promed Mail um, about an unusual cluster of pneumonia in uh, in uh, Wuhan in China and at that time they were trying to rule out other viruses like uh, um, uh, SARS virus that we saw in 2003 and 4 or uh, high pathogenicity uh, uh, influenza virus uh, at that time once all of these were ruled out they then named it novel coronavirus and they you know they started looking for uh, the viral sequences on January 7th they finally posted the the viral uh, sequence online okay um today we stand at three upwards of uh, three million cases worldwide now with uh, uh, more than a million in united states right so one third of the cases in the world are actually in united states um here where we are in canada um this has led to a lot of disruption in daily life as uh, as it has in in pakistan and uh, and other countries mm -hmm. all around the world more than 95% of world population is under lockdown right now right so this is unprecedented like nobody thought that this would uh, be the case how did we get here um you know somebody <laughs> 
it's it's very difficult to say right like as global warming as um uh, human animal interaction progresses the chances of spillover events uh, um uh, are higher and they actually looked back when when the corona when the sars uh, epidemic arose in 2003 and 4 they actually looked back and did a serological study about about coronaviruses in um, looked at antibodies against coronaviruses in a population in southern china and they found about 3% of uh, people had antibodies to novel coronaviruses okay and uh, so that means more these spillover events occur more frequently we just don't know about them okay this is very important to know because there is something different about this virus that that led to this explosive uh, chain of uh, infection and uh, um that has led to this much uh, disruption and death okay i'm going to stop here and see what 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 else we can talk about or if somebody has a question i wanted to ask you okay ye uh, is it a different strain or is it a mutation in the same uh, same uh, virus so coronavirus is right like a large family of viruses okay yeah, yeah. and and they are divided into alpha beta gamma um and delta coronaviruses okay um within these uh, uh classes there are subfamilies and what uh, actually we worry about are uh the sars coronavirus one right like that led to sars and uh, the second was second is the middle east respiratory syndrome coronavirus which is yeah. currently uh, floating or currently uh, circulating in camels and uh, with spillover event into humans again that virus is also originated in the bat from bat to camel and it's essentially a common cold virus in bats okay this particular virus is 85 or 86% uh, similar to sars coronavirus 1 okay. but genetically still quite different okay right. so we can't say that this is a mutated virus it's just in the same family of viruses it just spilled over now okay and uh, can you uh, kind of like outline the clinical presentation that uh, you know that you see commonly uh, how is it different from other you know viruses the other in uh, common cold and flu and stuff like that okay so what we have seen here it is uh, with this virus right like initially the thought was this is a common cold virus right like nazla zukam khansi and you're done with it yeah it's still true for more than 90% of people right and um there has been multiple uh, different uh, uh, symptoms that have now been attributed to it so going from head to toe i'll let rizwan talk about the neurological stuff but you know going through head to toe anosmia a uh, runny nose uh, coryza um even conjunctivitis right like so so red eyes um and then sore throat um in some people it actually progresses to pneumonia and what we have seen patients here describe is jalan like so so very different than heartburn they actually say our lungs are on fire okay so very inflamed uh, um uh, they have difficulty breathing right like so dyspneic um gi symptoms and the pathophysiology behind that is the ace2 receptors that we will talk about later too 
And these ACE2 receptors that this virus binds to are also present not only in higher concentration in the nose and upper respiratory tract, they're actually much higher uh, concentration in, uh, in the GI tract too. So people have been presenting with diarrhea, right? Um, um, and uh, more than, more than uh, um, influenza, they actually, you know, influenza, we know there is a lot of body aches and pains. But this is out of proportion in this to headaches and body aches and pains with uh, with this. So essentially, you know, this is what gives this virus an evolutionary advantage. Mm -hmm. Its symptoms are just like anything else. And allergies, right? Like this allergy season, like, you know, we would have uh, people you would write off as allergy. Yeah. But now you have to be so thoughtful and, uh, you know, diagnose it to control it properly. Yeah. So, uh, Rizwan, I'd like to uh, have your thoughts and your feedback on the neurological symptoms of patients having COVID-19. Yeah, thank you. So, Kareem, like, fantastically gave a great thing about the history and, you know, the, the upper, the other symptoms like respiratory symptoms and, and GI symptoms. So that's important. I just want to tell, you know, because physicians are, you know, we have general practitioners, internal medicine colleagues of ours who are kind of dealing with this uh, pandemic. The typical patient that you're kind of on the lookout for is your typical patient who walks in with a flu, with, with fever, with a cough, with shortness of breath, and everyone is like, you know, looking, waiting for that patient. So you're, when you hear of that patient coming in, you'll see, you'll get prepared. You'll wear PPE, you'll take precautions and everything. But what happens when you have a patient that comes in that doesn't have those typical symptoms? And that's that's kind of the problem. So for, for those who are interested, there was a very good article in JAMA that came out in about April of this year from Wuhan, China, for the outbreak. And what they looked at was patients who came with neurological symptoms. And they saw that about 36% of those patients that, that presented with different neurological symptoms did not have signs of COVID-19. So they were not short of breath not have any respiratory issues, no no fever, no cough. And what that happened was, what happens with that is like, let's say, if, like I, I deal mostly with strokes. So you have a stroke patient that comes to the emergency room or you have a patient with GBS. Um, the provider taking care of that patient in the emergency room or the general practitioner is not going to suspect COVID-19. Um, but then when that patient, you start treating that patient, eventually after a few days, that patient starts developing a fever, a cough, and they're like, oh my God, let me check for COVID-19. And then it comes out positive. But during that time, from the minute that patient walked into the hospital, to the staff in the emergency room, to the nursing staff taking care of that, that patient, or if you're in an academic program, residents, fellows getting exposed to that patient are now all have to be quarantined. So that was an interesting paper that said about 36% of patients from about a group of 200 people that they looked into had just neurological symptoms. And I'll, and I'll walk mm -hmm. through some of the symptoms that they saw. Because this and those are symptoms that I would never have thought. So the basic symptom that people would complain would be like dizziness and headache. Um, that would just be a general symptom that people would come in with. Some would have this impact consciousness leading to like a delirium. So normally we see ICU induced delirium in patients who've been in the ICU for a few days. But these were patients who were at home and were coming into the hospital and within a day were like hallucinating and slowly they would become stuporous, they would become somnolent and go into a coma. So that was one thing that was like very generalized, you know, uh, symptomatology that was seen. If they didn't have a cough, they didn't have a fever. So are you seeing uh, patients with COVID-19 having strokes as well? Yeah, yeah. So so I'll talk about that in a little detail in a bit. 
But yeah. initially, and I think one of your, I think Tajamol last week when he was talking about stroke. So initially, when the pandemic came uh, in in New York, or even I'm in Philadelphia, we're like 90 minutes away from New York and just 10 minutes away from Jersey. So these are like really heart centers for for COVID-19. We didn't see any any strokes, no strokes, no heart attacks coming to the hospital, and it doesn't make sense because. Why would somebody stop having a heart attack? Why would somebody stop having a stroke? It, 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 it does. My wife was asking me, what, what's happening? Why aren't you so busy? Like your phone would go off every night, like about 20 times. And now you're just having one call. You're sleeping through the night. Nothing's happening. So people are all, you know, surprised. And then we, you know, found out across the country, that's kind of a trend. And I'll tell you an interesting story. So we, we got a call for a stroke evaluation in the emergency room. And uh, my resident went and saw the patient. And, you know, we were confused if this patient had a... a you know, an acute stroke because you want to give them TPA if they're in the first one of our window. But that patient was really altered, could not speak. So I told the resident, why don't you, you know, examine the patient, get ready. I'll go to the waiting room and I'll talk to the family member who bought the patient. Now, the waiting room, as you know, in Pakistan, 100 people waiting, you know, families, people waiting to get into the ER, get evaluated. When I walked over there, there was just one, that one attendant who was with the patient, I was the only person over there and nobody else was there. I was like, what's happening over there? So after I got the history and I realized this is not like an acute stroke I should worry about, I asked the security guard. I was like, where is everyone? Have you guys moved to the, the waiting area somewhere? So he was like, no, you know, ever since we've got about two or three patients, we're telling the people who are coming in that, you know, we have a few coronavirus patients. So if you want to stay, you're welcome to stay. Otherwise, you know, you can you can go home. And everybody is going home. No one wants to stay in the ER. So then now what we realized was that people are just not So people are having stroke at home. And they're like, you know, we, we, we'll see. It's just my arm that's not moving. Or, you know, I'll, I'll get okay until they really, really get bad. And then they come. Initially, there was no stroke, no heart attacks. But now we suddenly see the mass in patients coming in. It's harder. And why do you think that is? Like, why is there a sudden, you know, shift in uh, paradigm? Yeah. So, the great question. So, so like Kareem described, you know, the ACE uh, receptor. So the ACE yeah. receptor, typically when it's found in your upper respiratory tract, it's also found in the endothelium. So there's this part, there's a lot of endothelial dysfunction that's happening. So there's a release of von Willebrand factor, uh, factor A that's causing the platelet accumulation, causing thrombus that formed, and that's going up to the brain and causing these large strokes. Interestingly, um, talking about New York, there was just a paper that came out a couple of days ago that there were five patients less than 50 years of age who presented with like massive stroke. Now, just for people who are not practicing neurology, uh, when you talk about ischemic strokes, I'm not talking about brain hemorrhage. Yeah. Ischemic strokes are those where there are five different types, but if I had to divide them into two major types, they're your typical large vessel and your small vessel. So from what we study in medical school, your small vessel are those small high, high blood pressure, diabetes, smokers, but you have these little strokes and then you have your large vessels. So you, you'll have a big blood clot that will break off, get stuck in the, in the internal carotid artery or the middle, middle cerebral artery or in the basilar artery. And that requires an intervention. So you go in and do a me mechanical thrombectomy and pull the blood clot out. So yeah. what we started to see is that these young patients, less than 50 years, who are sitting at home just because they don't want to go out, suddenly developed these massive large vessel occlusion stroke. And when they came to the hospital, interestingly, they were getting TPA and then the interventionist was putting a catheter in and pulling the blood clot out. He saw the blood clot was forming again, right over there, live in front of his eyes. And he couldn't believe it. He's like, this patient's on TPA, which is a clot busting. Why are they so 
uh, hyperglycemic level. And that I think we'll discuss later on, and I'll get Karim's so, input uh, to that. Just just a, one, yeah. uh, question: These uh, patients who have us are it. Did they have typical symptoms, or were they diagnosed already? Yeah, uh, they were just normal, and then they developed these uh, neurological. Yeah. They were normal at home, normal, just like you and me, no cough, no nothing. And suddenly they had this big stroke. The family was like, "Oh my God, you can't move, you can't speak." Got them to the hospital, and then during the hospitalization, they developed a fever and they developed symptoms. And then they were like, "Okay," um, and they gave the number. They said, "On average, we see 0.7." Young stroke every two weeks. That's young strokes. Now we saw five strokes in two weeks. And just to just for for people in Pakistan that you know when you talk about 50 year olds in the US, you're comparing that to about 30 to 40 year old people in Pakistan. Here people are very healthy, they're very active. You know they take care, they take good care of themselves. So these are like really young people. So that was very surprising for us. Um, and since you raised the question also, we there was a case that I had a 50 year old guy who's admitted in the hospital with corona. Just wasn't my two liters of oxygen. Doing great. Um, improved. Came off. Was in room air. Ready to go home. The nurse was like, you know, you're ready to get discharged. So he was like, let me call my family and just tell them to pick me up in 30 minutes. So she left the room because he wanted to call the fam, call his family. And when she went to check back on him in 20 minutes, he was he was he had collapsed. The phone was out of his hand. His right side was weak. He was unable to speak. And I remember I was on call, and that was the first patient that we had. Corona patient ready to get discharged and suddenly had this massive stroke. So, so we're now seeing this whole shift in in this whole prothrombotic state, which is not just related to strokes, but rather like DVTs and PEs, something that we know. Uh, but we're seeing more heart attacks over time. I also want to mention on the topic of neurology that um, there are other neurological uh, diseases that are now getting worse, or their presentations are like more worse of this whole COVID pandemic. So. Surprisingly, patients with Parkinson's disease. I know many there will be many physicians in Pakistan taking care of them. So there was a study in UK that looked at 10 patients with Parkinson's disease, and they saw that there was a 40% mortality in these patients because when they had the COVID, when they had COVID-19 infection, and that was surprising. Why would a patient with Parkinson's and these were patients who had advanced Parkinson's disease for more than 10 years, who were on levodopa infusions or had a deep brain stimulation, they were dying. Um, so they they figure out two reasons. One is that Um, they required increased doses of levodopa because of you know respiratory muscle rigidity. They required more of those doses to help them breathe, and these patients have decreased respiratory reserve. And the second effect was because of this whole concept of social distance. These people were at home. They're elderly. They're unable to get timely care. They're unable to get go to their GP, uh, get their levodopa doses titrated. So they saw that this is like 40% of the people are dying just because of this whole social distance. So that was, I thought, was very interesting. Another thing that people might see in the community is GBS, so Guillain-Barré syndrome. Yeah. Uh, we know, like, uh, we studied in medical school that if somebody comes with GBS, asks about Campylobacter jejuni infection two weeks ago or EBV infection, we know that in the Zika virus uh, that people would have the virus, and then two, three weeks later they would have GBS. The problem with COVID is that it's not a post-infection; it's a para-infection, the neurotropic virus. So people can present with your typical ascending weakness, um, which is GBS, and again, the healthcare worker is exposed, and then these patients later develop signs of COVID. Also, what's interesting is that GBS itself affects the breathing. So these patients might get intubated, might go on a ventilator, uh, and you never know it's because of the GBS or it's because of this whole COVID uh, respiratory failure that's happening. 
and some people have uh, also looked into uh, uh, patients having seizures or brainstem disease. And, and before I conclude, I just want to say in terms of brainstem disease, this is very important for the intensivist. Um, so there's a very there's a, there's a debate that this, the virus moves from your chemo and mechanical receptors in your lungs to the synapse and the neurons to the to the cardiorespiratory cardio symptoms in the lower medulla, in the brainstem. And they've seen like severe infection, severe brainstem infection. And that affects, when it affects the respiratory center, these patients don't have their normal breathing uh, push. So if they're intubated around the ventilator, the intensivist will be like, oh my God, I fixed his COVID, his lungs look great. Why can't I remove him from the vent? It's because they're losing that respiratory drive. So if you yeah. have a patient like that, it's very important that you do an MRI of the brainstem or you do some CSF testing to see their neurological infections causing that uh, respiratory failure. Just a, just a fun fact out there for medical students or young graduates, in medical school, we used to hear about the Undine skirt. This was a guy who fell in love with a girl, and the king, cur the king cursed the guy, put an Undine curse on him. So he had to remember to do everything. So he, yeah. And he also had to remember to breathe. So when he went to bed, he forgot to breathe and he died. So that Undine curse is when people have strokes in that lower medullary area, where actually the COVID virus goes. So that's something that people Yeah. Um, yeah, Andrew, you for such an elaborate uh, uh, neurological uh, you know, uh, summary of, you know, what you, you should look for. Kareem, can you please tell us about uh, the diagnosis? How do you diagnose the disease? I, I see a question here from Uves. Do you want me to address it now or later? Yeah. You can yeah, address you can. now. Yeah. Okay. So, so Uves is asking about uh, spillage of uh, coronavirus, uh, coronaviruses from animals, so a zoonotic infection. What about the other way around, right? Like, so anthropomotic uh, infection, which means transfer from human to, to animal. So yeah, you know, goras love here, love their pets here. And uh, there have been uh, cases of uh, uh, certain uh, uh, animals, uh, pet situation where they have become uh, infected. So I know about two cats in America, right? Uh, Rizwan, you may know more about the cats in America. <laughs> I know the tiger in uh, New York Zoo. And there is also a report coming out about uh, tigers actually in uh, in India are becoming infected. We don't know whether it can go from these animals, so feline animals, into uh, humans, and uh, that continues the chain, or it just goes into uh, from um, uh, the pet owner into the pet, and then you know it just dies off uh, there. But animals have had very very mild symptoms uh, at best uh, uh, with this. I hope I hope this answers his question. Yeah, and uh, now can you elaborate about the diagnosis? Like, uh, how okay. Do you so, um, you know, the, there is obviously not going to be a gold standard right at this moment because this is just three month old, right? Three four month old, but uh, PCR, uh, a nasopharyngeal swab PCR, is what's uh, used uh, for diagnosis. There have been other uh, criteria to diagnose it in resource-limited setting or in uh, huge uh, in places where there have been large-scale outbreaks uh, where they don't wait for uh, a nasopharyngeal swab. They actually look for um, uh, radiologic signs. So ground glass opacities on, on CAT scans, right? And uh, 
and exposure to somebody with an acute respiratory illness or exposure to somebody with confirmed uh, COVID. And uh, here in Canada, we actually made it uh, um, uh, so in the end that uh, anybody with an exposure to anyone from United States uh, was uh, considered a suspect until uh, there was, because there has been uncontrolled uh, spread in, in United States, right? Like, so until the border was closed, um, this was uh, also considered a criterion. So short answer diagnosis is done through uh, PCR, radiologic findings, and people are starting to understand the role of uh, um, immunoglobulins or, or uh, immunity, IgG and IgM. But yeah. those are very new tests, not validated. Everybody with a machine has come out with a test. So they need to be validated in order to be understood a little bit better what their role in diagnosis would be. Okay. So primarily clinical and then uh, supported by these things uh, that you mentioned. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, can you uh, talk about the latest drugs and clinical trials that have been going on? Obviously, we yes. don't have uh, much data because it's a very new uh, disease, but still, yep. if you can. Kind yep. of so this is very, very important to know um, because um, um, people started uh, running their mouths off about uh, uh, hydroxychloroquine between uh, being the God's gift to mankind. And then people started uh, 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 doing this, um, uh, started taking, uh, so, so fish tank cleaners apparently have chloroquine phosphate in them. So some genius took chloroquine phosphate because of their when it was recommended by uh, uh, Dr. Trump. And basically what happened in the end, they actually ended up, one of them actually died. Uh, mm -hmm. I can say that because I'm sitting here in Canada. Uh, but uh, basically the, the issue here, right, like is there are infectious disease society of America guidelines. There is provincial guidelines from, from Canada now, which we were a part of that recommend no drug to be used outside of a clinical trial, okay? The only, the only drug that is actually directed against this virus that we know of, it's called remdesivir, and it has shown uh, some promise uh, in, uh, in uh, um, um, at least one trial in US, but uh, most of the uh, data that came out of Wuhan did not show any benefit, okay? Then there are non-directed, non-directed, or non-virus specific treatments like hydroxychloroquine yeah. uh, and uh, chloroquine phosphate and azithromycin, which yeah. have immunomodulatory effects. So again, these are being recommended as, uh, as part of clinical trials and they are WHO solidarity trials that a lot of uh, international centers are part of. I would also mention one thing um, is about convalescent plasma that has also received a lot of uh, attention. That data about convalescent plasma actually came out of 1918 pandemic, right? Yeah. So uh, there were some cases where they gave convalescent plasma within five days of onset of symptoms to some patients and they improved. Uh, and they are starting to, to look into it. And again, uh, it's going to be studied in trials. So, you know, if you ask me, what would I do for, my, uh, for a single patient that presents or my loved one? I would say, you know, you provide them with the best possible supportive care, right? If there is a secondary bacterial infection, you treat that. Yeah. If there is, you know, septic shock, if there is ARDS, you treat accordingly. 
but specific therapy has there is none that has proven any benefit and it may actually be harmful so outside of clinical trials nothing has been approved yet okay. Okay. um um karim can you also touch a little bit about this herd immunity and how do you develop immunity to corona and uh, about that so you know the best example of uh, this uh, herd immunity uh, uh, trial is uh, is uh, sweden okay yeah and they thought they are not going to go into lockdown and uh, they are not going to go into lockdown and they will be um, okay because people sufficient people will be infected and they will develop herd immunity and they'll be okay sweden yeah. is now starting to have the highest death rate in europe so it just shows you who's the boss here it's the virus it's like we we just have to respect and and learn the role of immunity like we like none of the tests uh, for immune globulins uh, sorry none of the igg igm tests that have been done here have done uh, have uh, shown any uh, data and they they actually is a disclaimer you know some people started saying they will do uh, uh, igg igm test on physicians nurses and then send them back to work so there is a big disclaimer that says you can't use this to decide that you can use igg igm to discuss uh, about how much um uh, how much uh, uh, benefit uh, or uh, what what the actual epidemiology of the virus looks like but you can't make it like to make the de clinical decisions to send people back to work okay. um there is a question here Oh, you're going to read the question somebody yeah uh, there is one question regarding immunity uh, it's not here i can i'm just going to ask you somebody sent it to me uh, what do you think about pakistan being second time exposed to the virus due uh, due to low mortality as opposed to the western world do you think that's possible it's like a second exposure and that's what's uh, preventing uh, mortality rates to uh, climb that is a very good question okay and i i wish i can have a straight answer to this i like i would say we just don't know enough about this virus okay yeah. one thing i would say is like when you see a mortality rate like this you have to question how are you making the diagnosis right and is the mortality being captured like we would want it to be right yeah. so we like unless we have a sure shot answer about like okay uh, by everybody is being tested appropriately and uh, we are capturing the mortality rate properly it would be difficult to answer that and and can't speculate about that okay okay i want to bring in rizwan to this comment first um, can we anyway preempt stroke given the prothrombic nature of the disease based on symptoms of signs so can intervene in early and prevent a catastrophe so you want to yeah, comment on yeah that's a, that's a great question so i just want to take people back uh, just to know that besides the covid pandemic there's an interest article in 2008 new england journal of medicine that looked at people who would just have a viral infection what's the risk of them having a stroke or a heart and they looked at people they looked at about 20000 people in each group uh those who got vaccinated and uh, then eventually ended up having like a flu or a uti interestingly what that study showed was and this has nothing to do with vaccination that people who were vaccinated got a stroke 
these are just to make sure that people are immune. So, mm. um, so these people who actually prevented with influenza or with the flu, and some of them had, you know, a UTI as well on that. These are all patients who were admitted in the hospital, so we have the data. So there was a four times increased risk of heart attack, and about a roughly 3.9 increased risk of strokes uh, in the first three days of that illness. So we do know that viral infections increase the risk of patients having strokes or other vascular diseases. Now, can you preempt a stroke from happening? Uh, that's 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 a tough question. Uh, it's just like can you uh, can you preempt a patient having a DVT or PE? And I'll talk about this in a bit later on about you know prophylactic anticoagulation. But as of now, because this is all very new. We're not getting, we don't have much information to guide uh, like a primary stroke prevention besides people who have a reason to be like on aspirin or Bavit, um or one of those treatments. Uh, but I want to mention because Karim spoke a little about um, some of the some of the drug. Uh, I believe one of the one of the combination pills, um, I think it was Ritonavir or something, they have interactions with Plavix and Brillanta. So it's very important for the treating physician that if you're if you're being treated with one of those medications, there can be a reduced efficacy of Plavix or in increased bleeding risk of Brillanta. So there might be many patients in the community who have cardiac stands or for secondary stroke prevention or cardiovascular reductions might be on those antibiotic agents. So, so be careful. We have so much data coming out on new treatment. It's very important to look at you know drug-to-drug -drug interaction and see that someone's not at You might try to prevent something and cause something else you know, worse to so, so basically, there's a strong role of anticoagulants, and people tend to move towards it for the treatment. Right? If I, that's what. Yeah. yeah. So before before anticoagulation, I just want to explain this whole thrombotic event that happens. Yeah. So that people, was yeah. So so and, and then I'll take you to why this whole idea of anticoagulation came up. Um, so for those physicians who are treating these patients, it's there was a very good article in the Lancet, I believe, that looked at patients those who survived and those who did not survive. And they said, what are the different things, the clinical and the laboratory uh, changes that might happen? So I, I won't talk about the clinical thing that's, that's really detailed, but I'll mention a few lab findings that they saw, which is very interesting. So one thing was that baseline lymphocyte count that was significantly higher in people who survived as compared to those who did not survive. And when the lymphocyte count dropped, that if they had lymphopenia, it would be lowest in the first week, and then it would start to slowly go up in those who survived. Whereas those who died, it would just stay low throughout. Then the all famous that everybody quotes the D-dimer, the high sensitivity troponin I, LDH, interleukin-6. Clearly, there was a graph that went up and up and up and up and up in all those patients who died. As compared to those people who survived, the graph was actually plateaued from the beginning. If you have a level of like say 0.5, 0.6, 0.2, 0 0.3, and those people did great, they survived. Everyone who died, it went up from 0.5 to 1 to 10, 20, 50, 100, and higher up and did and so on. So, so we do know that there is this whole underlying thrombotic state. There's also this concept of age-dependent deficits in T-cell and B-cell function. So that, they say, possibly could lead to a deficiency of control of the viral. Um, also, there was this interesting studies from autopsy that came out from Italy, and they looked at lung function. And what they saw was that besides all the ARDS findings that you get, you know, the whole inf inflammation and exudate and everything that you that you see, they also found polyangitis that was small micro vessel thrombi that we've seen. And now people are starting to think 
that is there some small vessel thrombotic change that's happening that's causing people to develop this whole underlying vasculopathy and then eventually these people lead up to ARDS. So, so who knows? But what we do know, and from the Journal of Thrombosis and Hemostasis, they, they published this, that with anticoagulation, there is decrease in mortality seen in these patients. Um, and they also looked at, and I don't know much about this, so people who might be like intensivists could say there's an ISTH score for sepsis. If that score is more than four, they saw that people who got anticoagulation actually fared better off than those people who did not. And again, people who had high D-dimers or increased level of von Willebrand factor, they actually did worse. Now, I want to mention, because there are a few studies and because I deal with stroke, about findings of antiphospholipid antibodies in, in serum. So people say beta-2 glycoprotein 1 was up, anticardiolipin were high. And, and we know that people who have antiphospholipid antibodies or lupus, patients who develop those antibodies at increased risk of like venous thrombus, arterial thrombus, strokes, miscarriages. We know that. Um, but it's very important to understand that viral infections cause a temporary rise in those antibodies, especially anticardiolipin. We 50% of HIV patients will have those um, rise in those anticardiolipin antibodies, 20% of patients with hep B, hep C, and this is a transient thing that resolves within 12 weeks. So there was a paper I was reading that actually said that you know patients with antiphospholipid antibodies are coming, they're they're positive. So don't you know take that with a with a grain of salt. Don't just take everything that comes out. Uh, we know that that comes up in, in patients who have a viral infection. There's no reason why COVID should be any So based on that, based on those anecdotal findings and autopsy results, and the the, the single-centered or multi-centered experiences that people have had at anticoagulation work, there's this whole trend that people have now started to prophylactically anticoagulate. And every center has their own experience. So if people are interested, you can go to any website, online and you want to go to the Harvard website or Penn website and look at their protocols for anticoagulation, you're happy to do so. Many centers have established their own. I don't know how they're doing it in Pakistan, but there's a general trend that happens they bind tightly to these COVID-19 spike proteins and they down-regulate interleukin-6 and therefore dampen this immune activation. So therefore, heparins are the, the go-to choice, like low molecular heparin or a heparin drip initially. And they didn't see that benefit in DOACs, like drug or whatever. So it's important that people, uh, you know, have their whole institutions develop this uh, protocol for early anticoagulation. Uh, and then, you know, everyone has a different way they want to continue it after discharge. At my hospital, normally people send patients out for a month on low molecular heparin. And depending on other factors, like if they have a stroke or a heart attack, they want to continue it longer for like AFib. And those are different scenarios you might tweak it a bit. But yes, there is now more rationale coming out for early anticoagulation, which could actually indirectly benefit preempt strokes from happening, just like one of those questions had come up early on. But, but who knows? All right. So, um, Kareem, we have a couple of questions for you. Uh, uh, someone's asking, are you using steroids in your patients, especially in ARDS patients? So, um, we do not give steroids specifically because they have ARDS due to COVID-19. So if somebody has an underlying uh, chronic obstructive airways disease, uh, underlying reason to have to give them steroids, we give them the steroids, but don't. we generally discourage giving steroids um, just based on the fact that they are highly inflamed and with, uh, with COVID. And most of it has to do with we just don't know 
how bad people are going to do. We just don't know about this virus that much. Um, there is another question here, right, like about tocilizumab. Yeah. Yes, we have used it, but again, it is uh, used in clinical trials, not outside of clinical trials. Okay. And uh, there's another uh, question about uh, patients who have already had corona infection. Do, do they get reinfection? Uh, do they develop immunity or there are a chance of reinfection in them? Okay. So the short answer to this is we have no clue what happens. Yes. Okay. Yes. From prior coronaviruses, so if you look at other coronaviruses, you know you can be reinfected with them. Okay, with this virus, we just don't have that information. There is a case series out of uh, uh, South Korea, right? Like recently that led to this, like, oh, you know, people are being reinfected. The thing is they are diagnosing or uh, making a call based on a PCR. And you and I know, right, like PCR is highly sensitive. So it even picks up dead viral fragments. So you just don't know if this is actually live virus or dead virus that you're picking up. Yeah. So talking about immunity, like we just antibodies, presence of IgG and IgM, whether it confers immunity, we don't know. So I have a, I have a question for Kareem. So when you say that the PCR picks up um, virus fragments, you're trying to say that somebody could have had the coronavirus at some point is perfectly fine and now could still be PCR positive? Yeah. Yes. So there is actually, uh, this is a very good uh, uh, question because we keep kept getting asked that question, uh, especially about uh, physicians and, and nurses who have been positive, right? Um, I actually have one uh, physician here who has been positive for 48 days with his PCR, okay? Um, but there is some, you have to use clinical judgment, right? Like they're asymptomatic and we just, you know, keep sticking a Q-tip up their nose to find the virus. There is a small uh, uh, paper out of uh, Germany where they looked at this virus, right? Like, so basically they followed uh, serial viral PCRs and they tried to grow the virus, okay? What they found is regardless of if your PCR is positive after six to eight days of infection, you just can't grow, grow this virus in cultures. So this just leads credence to this thought that you're just picking up dead viral RNA fragments rather than actual live virus that would lead to an infection. So I have a question for you, uh, Rizwan. Uh, is there any role of alternate medicine? Like in Pakistan, many people believe that garlic and phalange has a role in prevention because of its antiplatelet properties. So yeah, does it I, I, I don't know. I don't know if somebody read my mind or something, but you know, two weeks ago, my sister called me and she said, okay, I have a sore throat <laughs> and, and I don't have fever. And I told her that, you know, after 20 years of medical education, my recommendation to you is thoda sa garam pani, thodi si shahar. So, so see. Uh, I'm not. Um, I'm not a person who's totally against all this alternative therapy. I'll just tell you this: that we live in the era of evidence-based medicine, and every data that we give or we provide to our comes with comes with like a comparative group. So some, you know, one person gets it, the other person doesn't get it, and you look at the other. Unfortunately, yeah. for all these other alternative things, treatments, we don't know um, whether they, we do know they work, but we just don't know how good they are. So we've seen people like, you know, people with a cold, a cough, you know, all, when we were growing up, that's what we grew up on. 
besides yeah. antibiotics all these jadi bootiyan and all these things you know oil and all that you grew and up we on fine. garlic exactly and we were fine exactly so 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 there's no harm in taking that unless you're going and getting a prescription from some hakeem who you don't know what they're putting in like steroids or something you know remedies there's no harm in it if it helps you great just do it but if you're having a stroke if you're having a heart attack or if you have some major problems then get to a physician don't don't rely on these home home remedies yeah kareem would like to add some Uh, you know rizwan des uh, amil baba in sadar it really works you have to, but but so so it's a very interesting question right like and jokes aside there is actually um uh very uh, fanatical belief uh, by some people here uh, where uh, they want to use vitamin c iv yeah. vitamin c for the treatment of this okay you know you and i know um what um uh vitamin c um like dr irfan ahmed khan used to say we peshab mein nikal jayega there is nothing that's going to happen just take as much as you want yeah. so people like i started like when we started questioning them about the vitamin c and ards due to uh, covid like they actually started talking about oh you guys are being negligent you don't believe in this it's it's just you know it's hard to explain sometimes uh, beyond the uh, beyond the be a this uh, this uh, emotional reaction because we really want to do something for a patient uh, that you are going to pee out the excess vitamin c anyways so take it if you want it's just you have to know what you're getting like this one was saying as opposed to going to somebody where you just don't know pata nahi kya dal ke de diya right yeah i i think besides these taking these remedies one need to ensure that you have to do all the precautionary stuff along you know you don't exactly. have to exactly that's the only way <clears throat> yep the sars epidemic right like during 2003 and 4 there was no fancy antiviral drug or antibiotic it was hand washing and infection prevention and control measures that controlled it nothing else yeah that's what the jammul was reiterating in the last uh, session that this is what you primarily uh, need to do you that's what you need to do because that's going to save you from getting the infection yep you have to tell people in 2020 to wash your hands yeah <laughs> um you know mehernosh from my batch is asking a question right so yeah, uh, mehernosh uh, hi uh, if you're uh, if you can see me but so this uh, lopinavir ritonavir right like kaletra that uh, uh, rizwan also alluded to so experience uh, not outside of clinical trial there is one clinical trial that actually showed that lopinavir ritonavir doesn't do anything and it may actually harm by uh, causing significant drug drug interactions so it's going to be studied as part of a large clinical trial we just don't know about this um rizwan you want to answer this uh, comment of using plasma for recovered from recovered patients in treating covid-19 patients i think i think kareem touched based on that um about that we still don't know but if if i think kareem if he wants to add something to that i mean it's just in the early stages uh there's nothing definitive that we know so far people have improved but then i've seen people also die i've heard reports i've not seen within the first 10 minutes of confusion people just yeah. had a anaphylactic reaction and died so so who knows the clinical the clinical trials that are going to take uh, into account these patients will take in patients who are within 5 days of onset of symptoms and not in icus with uh, ards because you know if they are going to die with uh, with this plasma you just 
going to make sure like you're giving them a treatment that may be harmful so you're doing this on ward patients as opposed to icu patients so just like again like it's clinical trials not not a lot of data yet yeah. here's another question for you rizwan you would like to answer uh, efficacy of tpa in stroke in a corona patient as compared to a patient without it any difference witnessed in the efficacy and what is the pro protocol followed at your end yeah the general protocol for stroke is the same so if we have a stroke patient we now treat it treat the patient as a as a patient under investigation so pui because of reasons i mentioned earlier that you don't know if they have covid or not maybe that's the first presenting symptom of 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 the virus so everyone's protected tpa mechanical thrombectomy standard of care we do that um i haven't seen any change in efficacy at my center but i was mentioning the study in new york where they mentioned that the patient had got tpa and as they were trying to pull the blood clot out um uh, the the large vessel occlusion they saw the clot was forming again so it would be interesting going forward to see how many centers report on that from a neurological perspective you know there now every data that's coming out this is all single center observational studies it's hard to establish causality across the board so you know it doesn't mean that every patient comes with stroke has covid under proof um but you, so we have to be careful but we, there's now a database that's been established where everybody puts in their experience with these neurological symptoms and sees how many of those patients had covid so i'm guessing that maybe a year down the line when people look at the frequency then you can say okay these things were mostly associated with covid or these are just some random uh associations that we saw some confounders that we saw just because pandemic um so hard to tell. but yeah treatment of care for stroke is the same no, no changes that we see um uh karim i would like to have you answer this concern for frontline workers what would you what would and how much of social distancing would you recommend from their family members living in the same house so you know we we thought a lot about this uh, before and i know there has been a lot of emotional talk about this uh, from uh, uh, nurses right um nursing staff and and physicians too but look it, this is a pandemic okay and what we know about pandemics is they don't last 2 weeks 3 weeks 4 weeks or a couple of months they we are going to be in this over the next 2 years okay and the most important aspect like to understand about a pandemic is that everybody is susceptible right like so it's the way you define a pandemic is there is widespread local transmission everywhere and everybody is susceptible because nobody has any immunity to it you have to make this decision for yourself right like so what i do right uh, we wear uh, scrubs uh, in the in the hospital and when we are going home we change make sure you know we wash our hands uh, my uh, daughter when she come wants to, like as soon as i enter the house she wants to come and you know hug me or give a high five or something you just stop up there you go take a shower and then you mingle as as long as you take care of these things like because this is not going to be practical we need to have that emotional connection with our families too recognizing that the worry is like what if i give it to my loved ones right uh, i i just like so so the recommended uh, physical distancing right like the specific question kitna dur it's 6 uh, feet or 2 meters right yeah. and in a densely populated area like like ours right like it's very very difficult to practice but that is the reason for for lockdowns 
All right. So somebody also asked uh, that if one, if the patient is asymptomatic but is corona positive, do they still spread infection? Yes. The short answer to this is yes. Okay. And it's a, it's actually a very interesting question because there has been a lot of uh, debate about this, questions about this. The, the thought is you have to understand what is asymptomatic and what is pre-symptomatic, right? So you're catching people early. Uh, what they know about this virus now, like like that paper that came out of uh, Wuhan uh, that Rizwan was mentioning too, looked at the RNA levels in the upper, uh, in the nose basically. And what they found is the RNA levels are actually highest about 24, 48 hours before the onset of symptoms. So that's how the virus will survive and spread, right? Like it, it's, this is why viruses like uh, like uh, uh, rabies, uh, viruses like uh, HIV and all can survive because you transmit it before becoming uh, symptomatic. That That's an evolutionary advantage. With SARS, the first SARS virus, it was it was so um, uh, rapid and deadly, right? Like you just like it's not an evolutionary advantage of a virus to be this deadly. Ebola, right? Like different virus, but comparison is this like to compare okay, a deadly virus. You it'll just run out of people to kill. So this virus has an evolutionary advantage that you are more infectious in the asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic period than you are in the symptomatic. So you're saying that uh, every patient who has the uh, virus will eventually develop symptoms, some kind, mild or, you know, they might go on to... We don't know if that is true, okay? And so the, a diagnosis or, or if you call somebody uh, pre-symptomatic, it has to be a retrospective diagnosis, right? Oh, yeah. You just follow people like a group of people who have been exposed and it has been shown that about five to six percent of people will be asymptomatic or minimum symptoms just a tickle in my throat and i'm fine right like yeah. din ke baad, i'm fine so yeah. those people have also transmitted the virus this is why the numbers are so high can you tell me about the mortality uh, in your part of the you know your region, what is it like due to uh, Corona? So Rizwan, do you want to start or? Uh, yeah, sure. So it, it varies by, by region. So New York has some people reported a four to 5% mortality um, in Pennsylvania. So we have like a seven hospital system that we talked of. Um, and one of the hospitals is in New Jersey. So interestingly, that one hospital in New Jersey has a lot of nursing homes around it. So they had like 200 patients at one time admitted of those 150 were on, on, on the bank. As compared to in downtown Philly, where I am, we have like about 50 patients, maybe 10 on the vent at one point. So it's very variable. It depends. If you look at the states like New York or Washington, uh, the West Coast, uh, LA, you the mortality is high. If you compare to Pakistan, it's it's different. So hard to put like a like a figure there out, you know, that this is the mortality or uh, if you get it, this is the likelihood that you will die. It's hard to say. I'm not sure how it is in yeah, Canada. So I was just wondering, is, uh, is there a reason for uh, mortality to be high in some part of the world as compared to the other? There could be a, a reason for it. Uh, I'm just like thinking aloud. 
So um, can I answer? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So mortality is very variable, right? And the, the, the issue here is, you know, when I when we first started looking at uh, United States data, okay, you, you have to understand the whole country of the United States, I think the, the population is, is 360, 400 million, something like that, right? Um, and uh, the whole population in Canada is 36 million, okay? Out of those 36 million in the province of Ontario where we are, uh, we have uh, uh, 10, 12 million people or so, okay? In the first two weeks of this, so uh, February, when everything was starting to ramp up, the the province of Ontario, just my our province here, did more tests on people than the whole of United States, okay? So when we looked at that mortality, we like the initial, the, the biggest worry was they haven't tested enough people, okay? So there is this pseudo um, uh, high mortality that you see initially because you haven't tested enough people, okay? The mortality rate anyway, it ranges anywhere from 03 to 0.4% to up to about uh, 2, 3, 4%, okay? But it's, it's mostly around 1% or so. Where we are here, we do have higher mortality because of nursing homes, right? Sorry, Vikte, Amari, Joanna, like they have fallen in, in nursing homes, basically. It's that's because of older age, right? Like 90 year olds who don't have the same uh, reserves, same fighting capacity as, you know, a 20 or 30 year old uh, would have. We have had people who have actually been successfully taken off the ventilator and walked home too but the mortality overall is about 0.3, 0.4% to up to 3 or 4%. Um, I, I would like to ask Kareem and Rizwan, both of you. Uh, um, now, recently, a lot of autopsies are taking place uh, for this COVID-19, you know, dead bodies. What's the remarkable and significant data we are getting from, from the autopsies of these uh, cases? In terms of how the virus, in terms of how the virus is evolving and affecting our, our human body, I'll have to look at uh, what are we talking about the autopsy data. Like I, I think you know, like I think there's a yeah, there's there's recently been a lot of autopsy results, uh, especially from lung pathology or GI pathology. Yeah, yeah. Whether I think that's where the question might be stemming from. Um, so I'll tell you that first of all, getting an autopsy on a COVID patient is near to impossible. We just yeah, had another it's patient. a big, big risk. It's a yeah. big risk right? We had another patient who actually died of brain hemorrhage, and we did everything to convince our pathologist. And he was like, "There's no way he's going to touch COVID patient um, and do an autopsy." Attack. So most of this data is coming out some from Italy and some from China. Uh, and I think what I had mentioned earlier also that the interesting thing is this: these micro thrombi that have been found um, in the small microvasculature that people are now trying to um, suggest that this is more of like the whole process is actually an underlying DIC kind of picture where they're now trying to favor early anticoagulation um, for all these patients starting off. Uh, so I think I think that's what the autopsy results have suggested so far. There was um, an article also about uh, looking at autopsies in the small bowel and the large bowel. I haven't read that in detail yet. But kind of, it's a matter of time. Slow and steady, we're going to find more things. But, but like you know, Karim mentioned initially also, it's phase two reception. 
wherever the ACE2 receptor is, you're going to have the virus. So if it's in in your, it, it's in high concentration in your nasal um, passage, you'll have a passage of that virus through that and cause loss of smell. Uh, as it starts to go down into other areas, you're going to have symptoms from there. But also remember that it's not always that just because uh, you have the ACE receptor that it's likelihood that it's going to go through that and infect that organ system. But there's this whole concept of disseminated transmission through the blood itself that the virus gets to other areas. So who knows? When you look at these autopsy results, like is it just a, a respiratory thing that is now, just like sepsis, you know, the source is a bacterial pneumonia, but now the patient's septic is everywhere. You have kidney failure, you have um, uh, you know, failure. respiratory failure, all those things. So who knows? But we'll see as more autopsy results come out. But the micro thrombi is kind of what people are trying to uh, put more uh, focus on. Like you were saying, just like sepsis, right? Like like microthrombotic events, right? Like right. just yeah. yeah. Um, Somebody asked a question, Huda, earlier. Uh, a few questions, right? Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about the. I don't know. Uh, I asked it uh, from September also, but he didn't have a concrete answer. I wanted to ask you about the viral load. Does it have any? role in uh, you know telling you about the symptoms whether or the recovery I asked the question Uda, earlier whether it's going to um, you know uh, it does it play, play a role in recovery or telling you about the symptoms how it's going to how the patient is going to behave so you're asking about quantitative viral load yes we i don't think that has been studied Okay, but if you look at other respiratory viruses, I don't think it would have any bearing on uh, on uh, uh, viral load like like it does in hepatitis C and hepatitis B, or HIV, right? Other chronic viruses just don't know about the acute viruses. What role would a um, a quantitative uh, RNA level would play? Oh, all right. Um, so there was uh, somebody was asking about the. Uh, vitamin D con con consumption to boost immunity. Uh, Kareem, it's uh, directed at yes. you. Sarah. Hey, Sarah. Hi. <laughs> it's the, like, so yeah, every time something new comes up, vitamin D rears its head, right? Like, so, yes, uh, people have fanatical beliefs here about uh, uh, virus, uh, about uh, vitamin D, but nothing direct, nothing specific uh, that has been shown. And I, I'm not even sure if it's being studied in any trials. But again, there are more meta-analyses about this than there is actual data about vitamin D in COVID-19. All right. And somebody asked about uh, uh, the children. Are they getting infections at, infections at the similar rate and in intensity? Um, so, yeah. So there was some very promising data that has initially come out of uh, china that there was a large case series of children and everybody thought you know perfect they're all going to do well because you know like upwards I, if i'm not mistaken there was about 2800 children in there and no serious uh, complications nothing uh, serious happened that all was fine and dandy up until a week ago when uh, the uh, uh, in uk there was a report about this severe uh, inflammatory syndrome and Kawasaki-like uh, disease that has been now reported in, in children. Uh, 
I we haven't seen it in Canada, but it is being starting. It is starting to report be reported in in US now. Um, most children like with Kawasaki, like it's a serious illness, but they do okay with aspirin and uh, immune globulins. But yeah, like there is something more that is coming up. Yeah, also on a note to that, I I just saw somebody asked a question a while ago about GBS and role of treatment. If there's any change with COVID. Uh, no change. So immunoglobulins, IV, IgGs, and if that doesn't work, then plasmapheresis is the go-to thing. Uh, and interestingly, you mentioned about Kawasaki also, so I wonder if IV, IgGs have a role. Yep. Rizwan, there was a question directed you at you before about uh, young age and neurological manifestation. I think you mentioned it before also, but I would like you to reiterate on that. Uh, have you witnessed it or in any other states also, or is it uh, more likely manifesting in the older age? Yeah, so uh, we, we spoke about, uh, you know, young stroke, and I won't, I won't go into detail on that. But I want to say that there, in one paper, um, they saw that 60 to 70 percent of patients had loss of smell. Um, and again, because the SARS-2 virus is highly present over there, so it passes over, you know, passes through the tibriform plate, can affect the olfactory bulbs, and actually can get to the brain also through that place. So so the, I know this one hospital on the West Coast that's now screen, screening their own physicians or their staff as they come in just by their sense of smell. Yeah. And, I'll tell you, and, and I'll tell you this, um, I know we all do the neuro exam in medical school and nobody wants to check for sensation, but I'll tell you this, whenever somebody has a loss of sensation, the only thing or, well, the only probably the only thing they're gonna complain of is that I don't, I think taste differently. So if somebody that you know and somebody how this says that you know the food doesn't taste right, uh, no, my taste is gone. Always check the sense of smell because that's going to be the first thing. No one's going to say I, I smell bad. Okay, so that that would be the first thing that you should check. The second thing is when it comes to young people, we've seen people having uh, this hemorrhagic encephalopathy uh, or meningo meningoencephalitis. Uh, so we've had young 19-year-old patients in case reports who present, especially on the West Coast, where they had fever, stiff neck. They were checked for COVID, they didn't have respiratory symptoms. And then finally, when they you know, started treating them, then three, four, five days later, they started developing the typical COVID. So yeah, in young people, we, we are seeing meningoencephalitis, anosmia, hypoosmia, um, and stroke. So, so yeah, those are, those are happening. All right. Um, and there's another question. Perhaps Kareem would like to answer. Any extraordinary precautions for on oncological patients? in this COVID era? Okay, so, you know, so pandemic, right? Like going back to pandemic, everyone is susceptible, okay? Uh, we don't know, uh, but what we know is everybody, um, the mortality rate and all is, is similar in, in oncological patients and all. But one interesting thing that has come out is they shed the virus, live virus for longer and with much more intensity than, than other people. Um, that are not immunocompromised, okay? Um, it's it's going to be determined in the next, you know, few months as we see this uh, spread further and further in human population as to how uh, uh, active chemotherapy, um, uh, et cetera, um, uh, you know, affects this uh, virus. There is a role, though, uh, where uh, we have started swabbing people before giving them highly toxic uh, uh, chemotherapy, highly immunosuppressive chemotherapy, especially in AML cases and all. 
where you have to be extra precautious and you know if they have evidence of uh, uh, covid you just don't you delay the treatment as long as you can and we have another question have they opened up canadian hospitals for elective procedures not yet so there is going to be phased uh, so like like uh, rizwan was saying before right like yahan pe like it's uh, um you know previously like it's a, it's a a publicly funded healthcare system here in canada right so government pays for your treatment everybody gets the same uh, level of treatment so usually emergency rooms and all right like they are like a war zone um, um you know there are so many people uh, coming in to get checked and all as soon as it started happening for, for with this uh, we started admitting people with coronavirus uh, the numbers just started dropping okay and then as part of uh, uh, the strategy to limit spread in healthcare facilities all elective surgeries were canceled here um because uh, so as to limit the the spread and uh, prepare the system for the surge of uh, patients that may come in because of that okay at the same time to control the surge there was physical distancing and shutdown and lockdown um uh, was also put in place uh, out in the community um now that we have started to uh, flatten the curve um there is talk about uh, slow and phased reopening of the economy and of the elective surgeries how does it look like nobody knows okay and um, you know we would look to to us like uh, how they are doing things and we won't do them right like we'll they'll just we'll take them as an example of uh, how not to do things and how not to just open up everything at once because a lot of people are going to uh, uh, die short short answer to this is we just don't uh, we haven't opened up but there will be a gradual slow opening up of uh, uh, this uh, over the coming weeks to months i also want to add that even here many elective procedures have have shut down even clinics are now all on telemedicine uh, that we're conducting uh, but i also want to mention the second curve that nobody talks about so your your diabetic patient your your patient who has heart failure who's sitting at home or your typical medicine patient who's not now coming up they're not following up in clinic expect that at some point those patients are now start going to have develop their own complications except that surge to slowly uh, start them there will be a high incidence of cirrhosis after this is the thought because people are just sitting home drinking now um okay so we have a question what kind of testing is available in the hospitals and what are your what are the turnaround time of the test uh, are they talking about do we know if they're talking about in general or or i think they were talking about in general they didn't specify i think the covid test so somebody comes in and yeah. you screen them how long will you get the results that they're covid positive i think the pcr basically i think that's about it 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 all depends on where you are right so there are centers that have a turnaround time of 4 hours because they have in house testing and then there is 24 to 48 hours waiting so until then we put patients in in precautions to make sure when you go see them you put on a gown you put on gloves and you wear a mask and face shield so uh, one more question somebody has asked that even if you have been tested negative can you continue to shed the virus 
tested negative as in after being positive yes yeah <clears throat> no doesn't make sense right yeah but uh, if the question is you know can you be that uh, episodically the viral so 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 the uh, uh, this np swab it picks up a certain there has to be a threshold of a viral level that it would pick up at right like uh, certain tests are highly sensitive where they pick up like 5 to 10 copies per mil of mm-hmm. uh, of uh, plasma but uh, if you don't meet that threshold or if there is episodic uh, shedding of virus there may be a point where you may be negative that's why initially mechanisms that were put in place for uh, people to be called the non infectious are two swabs 24 hours apart Okay, so uh, there's a question. How how is inter-hospital coordination helping in this? Okay, so um, I can answer this like in, in general, like 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 with us. So um, where uh, we work, uh, where I work, uh, we have uh, we are spread across a wide uh, swath uh, of. Uh, wide area and uh, we have a hospital system comprised of three big hospitals with uh, about 900 to 1000 beds okay <clears throat> um we have dedicated one hospital as the covid-19 hospital um where there is a dedicated icu unit with a special uh, uh, team that takes care of them and a ward where these patients come in okay um so this is how uh, inter uh, hospital um i mean we we are within the same system so but uh, you know each hospital here is mandated to have uh, capacity and to make sure that you know you you have it uh, you build up your capacity and do pandemic planning in a way that you're able to take care of a large number of patients so both of you uh can you answer this uh, how are your hospitals managing their clinical staff duty roster and well being do you have chalked out have you chalked out system to test doctors and nursing every few weeks so um, we have implemented what's called the active screening at the door okay basically what uh, what that means is before you come into the hospital there is a checklist of symptoms a large number of symptoms that you have to fill in and then you get clearance right like if you have even minimal uh, symptoms you you will not be allowed in the hospital you will be sent to uh, uh, get uh, tested okay um we haven't undertaken asymptomatic uh, healthcare worker swabbing yet because asymptomatic swabs uh, um i think they don't give you any information right like if it's positive it may be something but if it's negative it doesn't tell you anything because you may develop symptoms 5 days from now and your viral uh, um um a threshold would would be met like in the next 2 to 3 days so um just based on asymptomatic swabbing like we don't we it's it's symptom based screening rather than swab based uh, screening a very low threshold actually to test healthcare workers because outbreaks that we see now in the hospitals right like uh, are actually due to healthcare workers not practicing uh, uh, social distancing 
uh, right, like um, break rooms and all uh, where where they meet. And you know, it, it, there is a lot of death that you have to deal with. We we deal with a very older <coughs> population here, and uh, um, it's just it's impossible to have uh, physical distancing. So we have relied on uh, symptom-based uh, screening. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, something similar, yeah, something similar too. So so the staff entrance is totally different from your regular, yep. where people enter yep. is different from where people leave is different. Everybody has to wear a mask now as they enter. And anywhere in the hospital, you have to be uh, wearing a mask. You screen with your temperature as you get in. In terms of um, other staff, so any staff that doesn't need to be in the hospital should not be in the hospital. So if you're not on service, if you're not rounding, then you have to be at home. All our meetings, like our journal club meetings or clinics, they're all on the iPad, so telemedicine, teleneurology. Um, as terms of when it goes to residents, so if the resident is on inpatient service, they're supposed to be there. If they're not, so they are. most of them are now put on elective or just on outpatient, which they deal from their home. So it's basically the only person who really needs to have a patient interaction needs to be in the hospital. No one else is coming in. Also, like, coming in. Also, um, you know, we get like uh, regular lunch as part of our meeting. So that also used to be like you have a big box, one large pizza and a whole salad bowl. Everybody's taking from that. So that's also not cut down. Everybody gets their own fixed meal boxes. You take your own meal box and leave. Any, any way No longer. Provide... Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. So, uh, so, you know, anything that, that prevents transmission. Then when you go to round, uh, only one physician will go see the patient and only at one point in time. So it's not like the whole team is going in the room, like the resident will go, then the medical student will go, then the consultant will go. So one person will go and normally it's a consultant because the consultant has to see the patient and the consultant will keep the iPad in the room and the residents will actually be watching the exam. So now there's a change in uh, how it was before. First, the resident used to go and see the patient, but now the attending is going and seeing the patient. So anything to limit exposure. And I'm talking about the neurology floor. We're not even having COVID patients. Um, and then in the hospital also, the majority of hospitals have done this, that they've made a COVID unit that's totally isolated or totally separate. So you won't have a COVID floor within one other floor. So we have seven towers. One tower is like floor one to floor seven is all COVID. So you have the COVID ICU in that. You have the COVID step down in that. You have the COVID general um, floor in that. And everything else is also so that's why just to limit it. And also, uh, uh, the good thing that the hospital did was that they don't want us to take public transport anymore. So for mm -hmm. those who want, for those who drive, the garage parkings have been made free. The 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 area around the hospital parking is now not being charged anymore by the city. So people want to park over there. Also, we have the Sheraton that's right behind the hospital. So they are often free rooms for people, especially in the emergency room, who are doing like long shifts cannot drive home, so they get free rooms to stay over there. Uh, but it's great. So anything to uh, decrease the exposure to. We have done this uh, here too, where uh, a staff that is working in uh, dedicated COVID units does not go anywhere else in the hospital to work. Right. right? Like okay. So that has also been uh, cohorted that way. All right. So any cases of vertical transmission, what about breast transmission <coughs> with corona positive? So, so there was um, a report, and there is now more reports coming out of New York. Yes, there is vertical transmission, but the thing is, neonates and all just do okay. Um, so the recommendation is not to separate them from from the mothers. It's it's there in the breast milk. It's there, 
it's just you just don't know what that means because the baby has already been exposed right it's more like it's it's present in almost every bodily fluid okay um yeah so do you have residents work 15 days on and then 15 off and do they stay on <coughs> yeah um not 15 days on 15 days off so what we've done is we so we never had a night float system so uh for those who don't know night float is like you know you normally in pakistan we have the resident who comes and does a 36 hour trip yeah. um so we do we used to have that first but now that you know we did a night float so there'll be one resident who'll come at in the night and stay till 6 in the morning and throughout the week they'll do that so there'll be one resident <coughs> excuse me who does that um and then we've limited the residents so it's more role for the fellows more role for the attendings that they take on the responsibility rather than having a whole crew of like six residents around and you just have not two residents around also when it comes to medical students so there're no more medical students um uh that that are coming in so this is the time where they graduate and they start residency in july um so uh, medical students are all at home or so at some place they've been graduated early so they can start coming and working at intern Uh, before um what pp are you using in covid positive wards with uh, without aerosol generating so um thank you for asking this question whoever is asking okay this is um people have wanted uh, space suits uh, from the beginning right like uh, oh you know this is uh, and mostly this was driven out of the the fear of unknown right but what we know about this virus is it's droplet contact like influenza right so pathophysiologic mechanism is similar for transmission it's just it, it is highly highly infectious uh, so more infectious than influenza so if we are not doing aerosol generating medical procedures which is you know putting somebody on bipap or bronching or intubating and extubating then we wear a gown that this that is fluid resistant right you wear a mask with face shield so some sort of eye cover be it goggles or a face shield and you wear gloves okay <clears throat> um and you have to like because there was a shortage of ppe basically because you were in a cohorted unit all you would do is change your gowns and gloves between patients who are positive for covid and continue to wear the same mask and the face shield if you're doing an aerosol generating medical procedure then you do the n95 mask and an impermeable uh, gown and uh, face shield that way so we'll just have a couple of more questions because we're running out of time and uh, the questions will be on the facebook uh, live uh, the stream and uh, both of you can answer uh specifically on them uh this question uh, can somebody answer give uh, in fact kareem uh, given canadian healthcare system this state run has government been able to become biggest healthcare data aggregator what is the level of integration and interoperability of data you have observed by the government that is helping them with prediction and planning or is it yet to happen so no we've actually been ahead of this and uh, all data uh, uh, is uh, carefully tracked through public health units that are 
um, that are responsible for certain uh, uh, local areas, so local municipalities, right? Like we have the municipality system here. Um, and uh, this data is very um, dependent on, uh, on uh, public health units reporting. Um, there is standardized forms that public health units fill out. And this is the same form that WHO uses for their pandemics, right? Uh, so all of this data is standardized that way. And there is a registry level data now at uh, academic centers and larger community hospital systems like we have, uh, where uh, um, we take into account uh, all these and then just keep adding uh, more and more. There are some centers that have started saving plasma samples, right? And also other body fluid samples uh, from uh, patients who have recovered are infected or have died with this and so that uh, for future like if we need to study something then we can use those samples um kareem i would like to ask uh, um i know it's it, it may be a political question but is there a mistrust among data coming out from different countries like maybe the canada is not trusting the data that's coming out from italy and whether the us is we definitely we agree that we are not trusting the data from China, but is is mistrust upon the data is also, you know, um, affecting the management of this uh, pandemic. Actually, I like, I would say no, right? Like uh, this has uh, brought out uh, you know best in in most of the people with uh, data sharing. And very earlier, uh, very early, like as soon as Italy started seeing its surge, um, you know, they started sharing data with uh, with the physicians here, um, and uh, started warning, like both in U.S., in North America, and Canada, and Mexico, that look, if you don't prepare, this is what's coming. And the the thankful, like the the thankful thing was that we actually had time to prepare in Canada, and we listened. We listened to WHO. We listened to our peers in uh, in U uh, not in US but actually thankfully we didn't listen but um, uh, but we we listened to to Italy right like if it wasn't for Italy starting to share its data like we would have drowned and we would be in a similar situation that our poor people in in New York are and uh, you know if if this continues this way like you know, Pakistan and India are now becoming um, uh, centers uh, where uh, things are starting to to ramp up, right? So <clears throat> listening, like I, I would trust the data that comes out of, of Canada for sure. Um, WHO, when they say something, right, that is very, very important. And I know Awais had, uh, had mentioned this before, like WHO website has a lot of uh, useful information and that most of the data that we get is either from Johns Hopkins or, or WHO website that way. So I would okay. trust them. Yeah. So Rizwan, some, uh, can you please uh, summarize COVID-related neurological manifestations and basically a nutshell of today's talk? Nutshell of today's talk, that's the whole talk. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. So I think, I think, yeah. Again. yeah. So I think the take-home message for, from a neurological standpoint is that if somebody comes in with neurosymptoms, keep COVID at the back of it. Don't go crazy testing everyone, but keep it that maybe that's the initial presentation. Young strokes, GBS, seizures, um, muscle injury, 
Parkinson's patients that are deteriorating, um, and uh, anosmia, hypoosmia, seizures, um, hemorrhagic encephalopathy, just to name a few. And also, I didn't talk about brain hemorrhage, uh, but we talk about DIC and thrombotic state. You know, two days ago, I was on call, and you know, I don't know if Pakistan has ECMO, but we use ECMO a lot in the US, and it's basically VA, VV, ECMO. You have to put a catheter and you put them on some heparin. Um, and these patients actually had a lot of hemorrhages, brain hemorrhages, and 40% mortality was seen. And we don't know why. And these patients were not on like therapeutic doses of heparin. So, so we actually were publishing that uh, probably in a week or two. But we've changed our, our guidelines that they should not be on heparin. They should just be on like aspirin and maybe low molecular uh, But just, um, you know, neurological symptoms, just like other things, um, keep it at the back of your mind. Don't take it that these patients will not have COVID, especially for the healthcare professional who might unnecessarily be exposed to COVID-19 and realize that uh, you know, a few days or weeks later. So um, we have another question. Where do you guys see things heading in Pakistan COVID-wise? Yeah, I think I think people in Pakistan can answer that better <laughs> than we over here. Um, from what I hear from family and friends, it's um, it's again like Karim also mentioned. It's it's the more you test, the more you realize. Unfortunately, you know, different countries have different social economic uh, factors that you really can't generalize one country to the other. Um, so Pakistan people are more daily wage earners. They have to go to work. We don't have a system where there's a lot of economic, um, you know, improvision or people like where the government can provide to the people just by sitting for sitting at home. So that takes a that takes a toll. And you know, like Kareem rightly mentioned, that we expect that probably if people you know continue to not practice social distancing, that the numbers might go up. But that's a double-edged sword because. You're technically saying that I don't want you to come out to work and I want you to be hungry, but I also don't want you to come out and get exposed. So what can you do? It's easy for the people like us to say that, but when you really talk to the masses in Pakistan, it's it's really hard to kind of justify what we're saying with, with the problems that there is. Yeah. So um, just uh, to let uh, people here know about the website of social information, that people can use to uh, get um, data or you know uh, protocols and updates and stuff. Somebody is asking me about brown ceiling. <laughs> yes. What does that mean? That means uh, I can't progress because I'm brown. Okay. No, I haven't seen that in Canada. I'm no, okay. that, okay. I don't know if that's what it means, but neither in the U.S. Okay. Yeah. So just give us the websites or sources of information that can. Can I add one thing uh, quickly uh, before? Uh, uh, so, so you know, we were asking, right? Like, what do we see uh, um, uh, from Pakistan level? And like, Rizwan answered it very well. Like, what we see for the world is. You know, with, with pandemics, uh, eventually what happens is 60 to 70% of population will become infected. So this virus is actually trying to set up uh, itself in the human population so that it will return, keep on returning as a common cold virus eventually. But before it does that, 
uh, this pandemic that comes in waves, it comes in two or three waves. The second wave tends to be the worst, right? So 60% population uh, becoming infected. That means about, if you just take mortality rate as around one to 2%, that means about 80, uh, sorry, about uh, 18 to 20 million people uh, will die. Um, and how quickly this, uh, how quickly this uh, happens is what uh, decides uh, how uh, healthcare systems fail, right? Like, so that's where we talk about flattening the, the curve. So these lockdown measures and all, and you know, they're easy to do here, but they are not easy to do um, um, in, in countries like India, Pakistan, and in Pakistan specifically where there is, like, how is how is somebody gonna feed the family who earns every day, right? Like who has to make money every day. So, no answer here. So um, just give us website. a you know yeah website and then we wrap it up. WHO, right? So look at WHO website. That's the best. Um, uh, it gives you very good uh, um, overview of uh, of things about what the current epidemiologic status is. And WHO website actually has very interesting uh, um, courses that, you know, that are free that you can do to, to understand, to study the virus, to, you know, practice infection prevention and control. And there is also this thing called the WHO Mythbusters, uh, mm. which I find highly, highly uh, entertaining and very useful. That's where all this uh, garlic piece uh, had come in somebody had uh, started uh, you know mentioning about uh, um, uh, drinking uh, clorox and uh, uh, all that bleach right like so they actually say that like you know please god you know just don't do that like nothing good is going to come out of uh, you drinking clorox and bleach and uh, they also talked like there were there was a talk about people rubbing sesame oil right like so Tilka, like uh, uh, oil, all over their body to prevent corona from entering. So, so mythbusters like that are very, very useful. Um, and uh, Johns Hopkins website tracks all of this in real time, which is very, very useful. It has graphs uh, that help and country-specific data that uh, that also helps. So, these are the two main websites that uh, that we look at. I also want to mention about data since Kareem um, mentioned a lot about data coming out from everywhere except the US. Uh, so I just want to go at least for the young medical students or the recent graduates who might not remember Irfan Ahmed Khan was like a master clinician. We were very fortunate to have a bunch of like physicians who we trained under. And if I start naming all of them from from first to final year, it would go on forever. Um, but when I when we started and I was our group was the first 10 people who started in medicine, the first uh, medicine block in final year. We were also scared of Irfan Ahmed Khan. He wanted to know everything in detail. But what yeah. the guy knew was the data. He always knew the latest research. And he would go into morning rounds and people would be scared of him. Oh my God, this guy is going to quote stuff that we also don't know. And, and I'm talking about the day when you didn't have an iPad or an iPhone in your hand. You knew it. That you were reading it. So one day I got impressed too. And I was like, I'm going to go read articles too and you know, try to improve my knowledge. So when you go to the article, you know, you go through, you, it's a, like an eight-page article. You have the introduction, you have the methods, you have the biostats, and then you have the results. And I was like, 
I'm not going to read this. So you read that basic, that first thing, introduction, conclusion, methods, and that's it. And like, okay, I'm done in two minutes. But when I came to the US, you you start to realize that all those things that you learn in biostat, this is a retrospective study, this is a prospective, these are the biases. You start to analyze the data much more clearly. So like Kareem said about Remdesivir, that you know we just had the latest you know data from the US showing some benefit, but China did not show it. So what I would say in terms of data is that learn to analyze the data yourself. Don't listen to whatever somebody tells you. If I tell you something, don't take it for granted. Analyze the data, see is, is the study really good? Like people quote the p-value. P is like 0.005 significant. But look at the conference interval. Is it wide? Is it narrow? Is the sample size small? Is it big? Things that we learned back in the day in biostat. So always analyze the data clearly. And then you will start seeing a trend that, you know, everything is not as simple and straightforward as people tell you. If I'm doing a research on a trial for a year, I'm going to try to say it's the best thing out there. But when you look at my data and you realize that you're like, uh, I don't think so. I think uh, something's not right over here. So that's that's something that I would definitely say when it comes to data analysis. Yeah, I, I you know, like this, uh, like just to add to this about WHO very quickly identified, right? Like that uh, with this pandemic, there is actually an infodemic that's uh, that's going on, right? Um, uh, everybody and their mother has come up, and and like Dr. Irfan Ahmad Khan used to say. Um, uh, you know, Unka uh, Dudwala and their meter reader, everybody has come out with recommendations about everything. Um, this is the reason I don't have a Facebook account, but you have to be very, very careful as to where you get uh, uh, your information from, right? And you have to look at, like, like Rizwan, you're saying, like you have to look at it yourself to make sure. Um, because um, there was a joke going around because everybody wanted to do a study about everything, and they somebody said uh, um, in uh, COVID nineteen patients, uh, blood transfusion raises the level of hemoglobin. <laughs> so it's gonna happen. Like it's just you. You have to understand. Like and take what you take from the data. But you know, if you can apply it to the bedside, this is just too early to be confident about this. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Rizwan and Kareem, uh, especially taking out from such a challenging and busy schedule uh, that you work at and a perspective you've brought in from neurology, Rizwan, that was wonderful for people to understand that not let's not ignore other diseases while we have this pandemic. Um, although you would like to say something, uh, Rizwan, you want to say any last minute note? Uh, and Kareem. Yeah, I just I would just thank both of them for giving such an elaborate and you know informative talk and uh, you know educating us uh, regarding two very specific fields. Um, thank you, guys. I think everybody is like uh, uh, you know impressed with the knowledge and uh, uh, you know how easy you make you guys made it sound. So uh, if you guys want to add something, it would be a pleasure. Rizwan, do you want to go? Sure. Uh, I think the data was the most important thing that I think physicians should take up. But I think for, for all of us, because we're physicians, um, I think the most important thing is uh, take care of yourself. Um, eat yeah. well, you know, sleep, exercise. Remember, we are at war with something which has happened, has happened after a century. And our families 
our relatives and our patients depend on us. So this is a time to to live up to what we've been trained for, um, interact. Um, I also want to thank you guys for being, making this this amazing interaction between the Yaudin alumni. Hats off to you guys, full marks. Uh, but keep the great work doing. Uh, as physicians, we're all equally involved in this. And if there's any way that we can collaborate or assist or learn from each other, we should keep that. I, you know, I thank you for saying this. Like it's, it's like, like this being Doctor's Day, um, made it specially. Um, what I would say is like, yeah, like, like in that same vein, like take care of yourself and you know try to be safe as to the to the best you can. But more importantly, just understand that it's not just the disease uh, uh, that we fight here, right? Like we are actually fighting the fear uh, more and. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's nobody's fault. Uh, like like it's it's unknown, and it's unknown that that makes you um, irrational sometimes. Um, and the most important thing about this is planning, right? Like so, pandemic planning, trying to just understand. Like, feel free to reach out, right? Like we, Huda and Fahim and Rizwan and all. Like everybody, have, we are all connected. Like, feel free to reach out through email to 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 ask a question. And I I really. This is the time when I I really miss uh, Dr. Fana Maskan the, the the most. I I don't know how, um, uh, what what he would say uh, during this. I I hope he's watching us and and I'm pretty sure he's, you know, smiling there, um, thinking like, uh, you know, now you deal with something that nobody has dealt with in in this generation, and I hope nobody else has to deal with in future generations. Don't eat bats. I know we don't. I'm just saying. Okay, guys. We're gonna I know end. we don't. Yep. Okay. okay. I'm going to end the broadcast by saying this, that uh, our blog will be, we will be publishing a blog where all of our MNI members can post their articles. They can share their thoughts over there. So not everybody is comfortable in coming and asking questions via video conference. So you can post your latest update over there. We will update you on Sunday. So it's going to be a good night from here in Pakistan. Okay. Take care. Peace out. Peace out.